the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock. At least I think that's the time. There's so much smoke out there, it's hard to see clearly anywhere across the uh, fruited plain. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us on this sweltering but less than record-setting day. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with uh, Anthony Hopp. He's the Vice President of External Relations. Not sure what that means, but he's with Samaritan Ministries International. It's one of those uh, alternative health insurance models that uh, we're going to talk about what that is and why so many, particularly believers, are uh, are, are following that model and what scripture might have to say about it. So he'll be joining us a bit later. And for those of you who listen in the first hour of the program, but not the second, we're going to share a conversation I actually had yesterday with Don Brown on a fascinating book, The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final uh, Combat Mission of World War II. That's coming up later this hour. Well, earlier in the day, they said 106 degrees are possible. Uh, there was a heat warning. It's still in, in place. Uh, by the National Weather Service. Um, But the temperatures are probably not going to reach the height, the record-setting numbers that we had uh, been told to expect. Some spots on the Oregon coast are going to hit about 90. Government camp, they say about that as well. Portland, uh, maybe 103 degrees, 102 degrees. We'll see. I'm not even sure now what the temperature is. Do you know what that is, Clark? I didn't look right before I came into the studio, but uh, most of the forecasters are sort of backing off on the uh, the earlier uh, planned 106 degrees, and a lot of that has to do with the smoke that's out there. Portland hit 103 degrees yesterday, broke the record for August the 2nd, which had been 96 degrees. Nearby Hillsboro, 104 Troutdale, 105. McMinnville, 105. Also broke records. Uh, Salem broke a record with 107 degrees yesterday. You're welcome to come to Portland to cool off if you'd like. At the Oregon coast, temperatures soared in the 90s on Wednesday. That's got to be perfect to be on the beach with 90 degree weather. You got that. Clark is saying no, not so much. But I'm thinking you got the breeze, you got the water. I don't know. It sounds like the better place to be to me. Uh, some cooling from the coast they were telling us was expected today as temperatures stay just below 99 degrees in the in the metro uh, valley. And I think that's probably where we're going to remain. You got a temperature, Clark? 90. He's showing me his fingers. 98. That's as high as we've gotten. 90. Haven't even reached 100. Although I know 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, it can reach at least that uh, by that time of the day. The heat warning went into effect at noon on Tuesday. It's scheduled to last until 11 p.m. on Friday in the Willamette Valley, the Coast Range, the Cascade Foothills, Cascades, uh, Columbia River Gorge, Upper Hood River Valley. So keep that in mind. Uh, tomorrow could be uh, triple digits, they're telling us. The extreme heat will end by the weekend with temperatures We'll only be back in the 90s, and that will seem cool by comparison. The all-time heat record uh, for Portland is 107. They had that win it in Salem yesterday. Um, that was reached here in the Portland area in 1942, 1965, 1981. Portland and Vancouver uh, garbage and recycling collection companies announced that they're going to start earlier than usual this week. So if uh, tomorrow is your day, have your stuff out 
uh, earlier as uh, as I did, um, because, as you know, garbage day, usually the worst uh, day of the week for the Rices, but we've had help these last few weeks. So hasn't been so bad. Uh, This is what the extended forecast looked like. They had predicted about 103 today. Who knows if we'll reach it? I doubt it. Uh, Tomorrow they're predicting um, hot, smoky, and 97 degrees. Sunny on Saturday at 94. Sunny on Sunday at 98. Monday, 98. Tuesday, 93. Wednesday, 93. So who knows? Maybe we'll get to wear shorts and flip-flops to work uh, into next week. Now, I'm not wearing them, but we have been given... A special dispensation because of the hot weather, and uh, lots of my coworkers have taken full advantage of that uh, opportunity. And I'm pretty casual myself, too, so it's been a lot of fun here at the office. Well, a thick haze from wildfires in British Columbia continues to blanket uh, the Portland area this morning and all during the day uh, with this uh, very hot weather. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality has downgraded the air quality rating in and around the Portland metro area to unhealthy for everyone. Uh, Yesterday, it was considered unhealthy for sensitive populations such as seniors, kids and people with respiratory problems. Thousands of people in uh, British Columbia have been evacuated as more than 100 wildfires throughout Western Canada threaten homes. You know, it just occurred to me, my mom was uh, talking uh, this morning and uh, last night about feeling like she was coming down with a cold. And my guess is it might be the quality of the air that's affecting her. She has a form of asthma. And so this may have (laughs) exact. I'm trying to think of. I can't think of the word. Exasperated. I was thinking aggravated, but exasperated, it, that will do. Anyway, it may have made the condition worse. I'll have to tell her when I get back home. Anyway, hundreds of wildfires have plagued Western Canada for the past month. Winds pushed the, the uh, wildfire smoke south into northwestern uh, part of the, the uh, United States. On Tuesday, the smoke moved farther into the Portland area throughout the day Wednesday, and by this morning, the sky was filled with hazy smoke. Air quality monitors in southwest Washington and Portland's Vancouver metro area show lowering air quality since Tuesday afternoon, so make note of that. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality issued a uh, an air pollution advisory to for Portland, Vancouver, Salem, Eugene, and Medford. Uh, that was on Wednesday due to wildfire smoke and smog from hot weather. The advisory is expected to last through the 8th of uh, August. Uh, smog has been exacerbated, I can say the word, by a record-breaking heat wave, as you well know, and that added to the air's uh, quality or lack of quality, uh, however you want to refer to it. So keep that in mind. Meanwhile, several wildfires and hot, dry conditions across the state of Oregon have prompted Governor Kate Brown to declare a state of emergency yesterday. Record-breaking heat, continuing hot uh, weather and forecasts for thunderstorms have put Oregon in critical danger of fires, she said in her statement. As Oregon faces a near-record-breaking heat wave, the threat of wildfires increases. I'm thankful to the firefighters and crews working tirelessly throughout the state and remind all Oregonians to be safe and follow posted fire bans. Let me repeat that because it's very important. All Oregonians, be safe, follow posted fire bans. Uh, The governor's declaration allows the Oregon National Guard to mobilize resources to assist the State Department of Forestry and the State Fire Marshal's office. Uh, Multiple fires are burning throughout the state. Some threaten homes and other structures. In the Columbia River Gorge, the Indian Creek fire is burning across 74 acres. The fire is not spreading. It's not contained and uh, is threatening some residences. Firefighters have uh, struggled with access as it burns in difficult terrain. The Eagle Creek Trail remains closed uh, from the boundary uh, with uh, Mark O. Hatfield Wilderness south of the Pacific Coast Trail Injunction. I love the Eagle Creek Trail. I hope that uh, will 
be protected. Um, the Whitewater Fire near uh, Whitewater Creek in Mount Jefferson Wilderness is nearly 300 acres. The fire is 10 percent contained and threatens homes, according to the Northwest Interagency Communication System. Uh, all access to the Jefferson Trail and Jefferson Park is closed as crews are battling with fire there. That closure includes an 11-mile section of the Pacific Crest Trail. Parts of several other trails in the area are closed, including the Whitewater Trail, Cheat Creek Trail, Triangulation uh, trail as well. Crews are fighting four large fires in southern Oregon. I won't go through all of them, but if you're planning on going out for a hike in this extremely warm weather, first of all, I question why, uh, but make sure that uh, where you are headed is not in fire danger and uh, the, the place you're headed is open and uh, you can access that. So keep that, keep that in mind. Well, the Republican surgeon and lawyer Newt Bueller is running for governor in 2018. We'll tell you all about it when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this, uh, well, in fact, next segment, we'll hear from Don Brown, co-author of The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. And he co-authors that book with... Uh, uh, Captain Yellen, who is uh, the book is uh, the account of it wasn't put very well, but you get the idea. Well, Republican surgeon and lawmaker Newt Bueller is running for governor in 2018. He uh, currently serves in the Oregon House. He was widely expected to run against Governor Kate Brown and could be her most serious challenger if the governor decides to seek reelection next year. Now, Kate Brown has been fundraising and campaigning since the day after she was elected last year, but she's yet to formally announce her plans. Now, Bueller made his announcement in a meeting with the editorial board of his hometown newspaper, The Bulletin, on Wednesday and told the Bend paper he's planned a broader announcement well, sometime today, Bueller's been built, or rather, Bueller has been building his credentials as a moderate Republican, successfully pushing in 2015 to uh, expand access to birth control, a cause also important to Brown, and voted last year to pass an anti-coal bill that doubled the state's renewable energy requirement. Many Republicans oppose that bill. If Brown and Bueller face off in the general election next year, it will be a rematch of 2012 when they both ran for secretary of state. Brown, who won that election and was elected to governor in February of 2015, when then-Governor John Kitzhaber resigned amid an influential or influence-peddling scandal. Now, Bueller is uh, referring to himself as a moderate. I received an email earlier today from NARAL, um, which is the uh, pro-abortion group uh, here, who disputes that and points out that he has been funded uh, by Oregon Right to Life. I don't know if that is this current session uh, given um, the uh, the bill that w- he references in his own credential. But nonetheless, uh, that will be a major issue in his effort to become the next governor of the state of Oregon. My hope is that he is, in fact, pro-life. We'll have to see what his credentials and voting history say. Well, the news of a transgender man giving birth, uh, are, well, they're greatly exaggerated. Tristan Reese and his partner Biff Chaplow Uh, were already seasoned parents when they decided last year that they wanted another child. Years earlier, they had adopted uh, Chaplow's niece and nephew after his sister was no longer able to care for them. They raised the two children as their own, bringing them up in Los Angeles, where Reese and Chaplow uh, worked in nonprofits, then moved the family to Portland, where they now live. Adoption was a taxing process, Reese says, and learn how to care for two, learning rather how to care for two toddlers ushered in a suite of new challenges and lifestyle changes, as it does for any parent. But it was also eye-opening. Uh, after the dust settled, uh, says one, I realized how much I loved our kids. 
speaking to the Washington Post and how much room there is in our family to grow. Well, the story goes on. Uh, Reese is a transgender man, which means biologically Reese is a woman and got pregnant. And just weeks ago, uh, she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. Now, she is living as a he, but in order to bear a child, he has to be a she. So I refer to him as a her because that is what he is. Hope you could follow that. The interesting thing to me is the uh, the headline read and the big brouhaha was that a man for the first time has had a baby. The truth is no man has ever had a baby, and that includes Reese. Now, Reese can live however he wants to. Uh, biologically, Reese is a woman, so it's really not a big story that Reese had a baby. That's what women do. And despite the fact that you may take um, hormones to suppress your femininity, to, for lack of a better way of putting it, the fact that you may alter your bi- your physical appearance, you remain what God made you, and that is, in Reese's case, a woman. So Reese had a baby. That's what women do. Reese is living as a man. Reese is free to do that. Just wanted to clear that up. Uh, the headline that a man has now had a baby would not be accurate. Aren't conservatives supposed to be the knuckle-draggers who have no regard for science? I suppose that only applies in some cases. Anyway, a professor in Canada who refuses to use gender-neutral pronouns and criticizes social justice issues was banned from using his Google and YouTube accounts earlier this week. He regained access hours uh, later with no detailed explanation provided. But Professor Jordan Peterson of the University of Toronto disputed Google and YouTube's decision to lock him out of his accounts, according to correspondence. Um, Please tell me what principle I have violated, said uh, the professor in his email to Google upon discovering that he was locked out of his account. I have not violated any terms that I am aware of and have not misused my account. Well, the psychology professor has over 350,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, which he uses as a platform to post his lectures, interviews, and Q&As. We understand you've recently been unable to access your Google account, and we appreciate your contacting us, Google said in response. After review, your account is not eligible to be reinstated due to a violation of our terms of service. But Google didn't provide any details regarding which rule the professor had violated. When emailed at his Google address, Google returns an address not found error message. I've had that account for the last, say, 15 years, Professor Peterson says. All of my correspondence is on that account. It's hundreds of thousands of emails from people all over the world. Well, the professor said he initially thought it was just a mistake. But the fact that uh, they reviewed it and then decided that my account is not eligible to be reinstated indicates to me either that this is quite a curious mistake or that there's something that's uh, political going on that's associated with censorship. Well, Peterson reiterated that he had not violated the terms of service, stating that he had only recently posted a video detailing his plans for the future. This is just another example of the this big these big companies, rather, that either kowtow to pressure or decide on their own, according to uh, 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 on their own accord, rather, who gets to communicate and who does. Uh, who doesn't? Well, Peterson's YouTube video criticized social justice regularly obtained tens of hundreds of thousands of views. The uh, professor came under scrutiny in 2016 after criticizing a bill which would potentially criminalize using the wrong gender pronoun to identify someone. That bill is now law. And apparently that was the reason that Google decided he had violated some unstated rule to be permitted, uh, Google and YouTube, to per- be permitted to continue communicating uh, on those sites. Well, the state of Wisconsin and its capital city of Madison cannot legally force a Christian photographer to photograph same-sex weddings, according to the court. Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian conservative legal group defending evangelical Christian photographer Amy Lawson, um, was uh, announced that 
Dane uh, County Circuit Court vowed in a hearing on Tuesday to issue an order declaring that Lawson is exempt from city and state laws that could force her to photograph same-sex weddings or face crippling punishment. Well, ADF explained in a press release that although the court has not yet officially issued a preliminary injunction in the case, it is expected to do so in the coming weeks. Uh, in their press release, that they point out that 25-year-old Lawson, who runs her own photography business, is not subject to state and city ordinances that prevent places of public accommodation from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. The court reportedly reasoned that Lawson is exempt from that law because she does not have a physical storefront, such as... Uh, and such laws would have control over her artistic freedom. The court's announcement has important implications for anyone in Wisconsin who values artistic freedom. Uh, the ADF senior counsel, Jonathan Scruggs, said in a statement. Now, whether or not this will be challenged, we'll have to wait and see. But this is what uh, the court decided in Wisconsin. It means that government officials must allow creative professionals without storefronts Anywhere in the city and state, the freedom to make their own decisions about which ideas they will use their artistic expression to promote. Scruggs continued by stating that the city and state, they've agreed with the court's finding that such professionals cannot be punished under public accommodation laws for exercising their artistic freedom because those laws simply do not apply to them. No one should be threatened with punishment for having views that the government doesn't favor, Scruggs went on to say. Lawson's troubles began in 2016. She put a statement on her website explaining that she could not promote same-sex marriage through her photography and blog and that she would not serve same-sex weddings as a photographer. Like many other Christian business owners who have declared that they won't participate in the weddings, Lawson's uh, Lawson's decision rather to post the statement on her website caused some backlash. One wedding client that saw her statement canceled her services because of her belief in marriage. Now, the service was not for uh, the contractual service was not for a wedding, but for something else. So she's not opposed to individuals who exercise their freedom of uh, lifestyle, but does not want to participate in a sacred ceremony. Now, according to ADF news reports about how Christians can face crippling fines for not serving same sex weddings, drove Lawson to remove the statement from her website. But now the court has at least in her narrow circumstance vindicated her as an artist uh, without a specific storefront. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from uh, Don Brown. I had a conversation with him uh, earlier. The last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II, the subject of our conversation, and the title of the book he co-authored. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on the morning of August 15th, 1945, Captain Jerry Yellen flew the last combat mission of World War II out of Iwo Jima. Today, Captain Yellen is a sharp, engaging 93-year-old veteran whose story is brought to life by best-selling author Don Brown. From April to August of 1945, Captain Jerry Yellen and a small group of fellow fighter uh, pilots rather flew dangerous bombing and strafing missions out of Iwo Jima over Japan. Even days after America dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on the 6th of August and Nagasaki on the 9th, the pilots continued to fly. Though Japan had suffered unimaginable devastation, the emperor still refused to surrender. Well, best-selling author Don Brown sits down with Yellen to tell the incredible true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Nine days after Hiroshima, on the morning of August the 15th, Yellen and his wingman, First Lieutenant Philip Schlamberg, they took off from Iwo Jima to bomb Tokyo. 
and the story is a fascinating one. Well, Don Brown is a former U.S. Navy JAG officer and special assistant U.S. attorney. He's the author of 13 legal and military books. His works include the best-selling lo- uh, novels Treason in 2005 and Malacca Conspiracy in 2010, as well as the expose call sign Extortion 17, the shootdown of SEAL Team 6 in 2015, a highly detailed account of the most deadly American loss of life in the Afghan war. <clears throat> Excuse me. The shootdown of a U.S. Army Chinook helicopter carrying 13 Americans, including 17 members of the vaunted SEAL Team 6. He joins us today to talk about the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, good afternoon. I'm so happy to be with you today. I'm, I know you work. I'm a fan of your work. And so, therefore, it's a special blessing to be here. And thank you for that nice introduction. I don't, couldn't have done any better myself. <laughs> well, know. thank you. So thanks so much for those gracious words. Well, let me ask, for listeners who perhaps are not as familiar with the war or the history of, of the, uh, the, the combat that took place on Iwo Jima, why is it important for us to be reminded in some detail the recollections of an individual who was there at the very end of this very long and, and treacherous uh, war? Well, first of all, we know that those who are who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. And um, our World War II generation is disappearing more rapidly every day. I just had lunch with Captain Jerry Ellen, and he pointed out that even the youngest World War II vet now, even the youngest, is probably around 90. If they were 18, you know, and went in in 45, in the world of the war, you look at uh, you look at uh, how rapidly they are disappearing, and uh, and they're national treasures. Yes. This this mission is a historic mission. It's certainly it, it, it's something that history has forgotten until this book now is being published. And I want to thank you for helping us get the word out. But but if you think about it, what if we were able to go back and talk to some of the founding fathers at the time of the American Revolution, or talk to Lincoln, or any even any commanders from the Civil War? Uh, these are these guys are national treasures. You know, Winston Churchill once said, really, uh, of, 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 of the Royal Air Force, that never has so many owed so much to so few. Yes. And here in America today, those words have become prophetic again as we think about our World War II generation. It's true that for us, never have so many owed so much to so few. So that's why it's important. And uh, and when I learned uh, of Jerry's story, and I learned of it uh, through actually a YouTube video that had been uh, recorded in March of 2015 on the island of Iwo Jima. And the Japanese government and the U.S. military had invited uh, veterans of that of that massive marine assault back to Iwo Jima to commemorate. And, of course, only a very few were able to come. Well, Jerry was there in uniform and was interviewed. And I started to watch it. He was standing there on the windswept beaches of Iwo Jima, very humble. Uh, what did you do, Captain? What did you do in the war? He said, I, I flew fighter planes. I flew P-51s for the last six months of the war. He went on to explain that all the guys, none of the guys that he served with were able to come back. Just about all of them are gone. Uh, some were killed there cut off at 18, 19, and 20 years of age, which had a devastating effect on Jerry Catmullen himself, and others have passed away in the years since. So he had come back, he said, to stand there for them, to represent them, because they could not represent themselves. And then he, he went on to say that he had gone the final mission of the war on the day that the Japanese, that the emperor uh, was announcing the Japanese surrender on the air, and that his wingman, a young 19-year-old young man named 
Lieutenant Phil Schwamberg, 19 years old, from Brooklyn. A Jewish, a Jewish kid, just like Jerry himself. They were the only two Jewish pilots in the squadron. We're flying the last mission, and Phil was on Jerry's wing. They went in to attack a Japanese airfield, um, and when they pulled up into the clouds, Jerry emerged from the clouds, and Phil was gone. Young Lieutenant Phil Schlomberg apparently had been shot down by anti-aircraft fire, trailing him into the clouds, and is the last known combat death of World War II. And when I heard this, it was just, it just grip, was gripping me. And Jerry closed the interview by saying, the greatest honor of my life was to serve my country. So I knew I had to try to write this if the doors would open to it. And the doors have opened. Thank the Lord. I'm very grateful to be here with you and then help try to get the story out. You know, it's very somber when you read the details of, of one man's experience. And he makes the point that this isn't just his story. It's the story of all the men who served with him. He, he writes that we were the men of the 70, uh, the 78th Fighter Squadron of the 15th Fighter Group of the 17th uh, Fighter Command of the U.S. Uh, Army Air Force. Our first assignment was to land on Iwo Jima, a pork chop shaped island of only eight square miles. It was a much tougher battle there than was originally planned for and anticipated, but that's where his military experience began. That's exactly right. And, of course, many of us have seen that classic photograph by Joe Rosenthal of the Marines pushing the flag up on Iwo Jima. Now, as a Navy veteran myself, I'd like to point out that in the original picture, there was a U.S. Navy corpsman involved in pushing the flag up. So that's just an inter-service rivalry thing. But seriously, we've seen that great photo of the Marines pushing the flag up on Iwo Jima. It is a, a symbol of the U.S. Marine Corps. It is There's a, 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 there's a great monument in D.C. of that, of that scene. But very few people know why we took Iwo Jima. The reason we took Iwo Jima is because we needed an air base in the middle of the ocean. We needed an air base to put these fighter planes on because we had been running. Iwo Jima was invaded by the Marines. Our D-Day was February the 19th, 1945. Europe was about to fall by the time the Marines, uh, you know, began to invade Iwo Jima. They, it took them from February the 19th of 1945 until March the 26th to fully clear Iwo Jima of the enemy. Well, on March the 7th, two weeks before the island was even safe, these guys, Captain Young and his fellow flyers, fly in and land in a hot zone. They land in a hot zone. The fighting was still going on and eight square miles. Let me tell you what that means. That means the island's about two miles long from one end to the other, one end being Mount Suribachi, that mountain at, the, at one end, and everything else flattens out like a pancake, and only about 800 yards wide. And there were 80,000 Marines and 22,000 Japanese tunneled under the island. So these guys land on this airfield, and as soon as they land, the first thing that Jerry Young will tell you is the thing that hit him was the stench of death. Yes. He still had his glass canopy over his over the cockpit, which was the cockpit, pulling this plane in, but there are mounds of bodies, marine bodies, just mountains of bodies lined up all along that runway that they had not been able to bury yet. And, of course, there were flies swarming them, and the stench was almost more than could take. They jump out of the plane on March the 7th when they first get there, and are told to stay low, get a shovel, dig a foxhole now. We're not done. you got to stay down. So the first night, these pilots had flown from Saipan, and now they're on this this deserted, windswept island in the middle of the Pacific, thousand miles from home, where a battle's going on, and that whole first night, they're laying in these shallow foxholes, hearing mortar fire going off, you know, hearing gunfire going off, not knowing if they will even survive the night to be able to go up in their planes the next day. So that's the environment that they came in. All this, and, and the stories that we recount in Last Fighter Pilot, and this is another re- reason it's important for us to get this down now, is to remind us that freedom isn't free. 
And that is so true on multiple levels, but we need to know that and we need to be reminded of it every day. Oh, absolutely. And you think about how young these uh, these men were. Some were in their teens. They were in, entrusted alone in the cockpit of a P-51 by their country. Most uh, hadn't yet seen combat. Some couldn't even drive a car, but all were given the confidence of their country to pilot what was at the time the world's most sophisticated fighter plane. So these young kids <laughs> essentially are charged with a, a tremendous responsibility that fly into the, the situation you've just described and somehow have to get their heads together so that they're ready in the morning to fly off and uh, carry out the mission that they've been assigned. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to consider. That is that's absolutely correct. And these guys were volunteers. Yes. They, none, of them, uh, none of them had to be pilots. As a matter of fact, the young man who lost his life, uh, First Lieutenant Phil Schlomberg, 19 years old, did not even... The last combat death of the war, we never found his body. Uh, he's memorialized at the tablets of the missing at the Punchbowl Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu. Um, he was the youngest of 10 kids from a Jewish immigrant family in Brooklyn. Um, they were poor. Um, his aunt, uh, Melanie Sloan, who is, by the way, this is an interesting connection, is the mother of Scarlett Johansson. Uh, Phil was Scarlett Johansson's great aunt. His mother, Melanie Sloan, has told me, and I, this is recounted in the book, that that family was so poor that they would sell, uh, they'd go out of Coney Island and sell ice, they'd sell ice with, uh, with, uh, with a sweetener in it on the beach to, you know, the hot beachgoers to make a little bit of extra money. They were that poor. And, uh, but this, this young man was a valedictorian of his class, Abraham yes. Lincoln High School, and scored so high on the Army entrance exam, he could have done anything. They said, do anything you want. You go into Intel, you get an office job, desk job, work for general, wherever you want. He wanted to fly planes because he wanted to take the battle of the enemy, and he wound up losing his life. You know, where do we find these men today? But that's another reason, you know, we need to think back. Uh, it's been said that those who, you know, of course, are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. And, uh, History is so important because it helps us to understand human nature. We must never forget the real face of evil. There's evil in the world, and we have to take a stand against it. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the last fighter pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. Don Brown is my guest. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest is Don Brown. He's the co-author with Captain Jerry Yellen of the fascinating book, The Last Fighter Pilot, The True Story of the Final Combat Mission of World War II. Now, just before the break, we were talking about Phil Schlamberg, who was a very good friend of uh, Captain uh, Jerry Yellen. He had had a premonition the night before this mission that it actually coincided with the end of the war. Um, and yet he was willing to uh, to go into that cockpit and and fly, even though he had said to his friend um, that he wasn't he wasn't going to come back. That he, if he went on that mission, uh, he would not return. That is that's true, George. As a matter of fact, Captain Yellen, um, who sort of mentored Phil, mm-hmm. uh, had flown. This was his nineteenth combat mission over Japan alone, and these were long flights, four hours one way. Attack the target four hours back, strapped into a cockpit, and a really you can't get up and, and move around. We're in L.A. right now. Uh, we were at the Reagan Library last night where we kicked this book off. We'll be at the Nixon Library uh, tomorrow night. But I flew from Charlotte, which is where I live, on the East Coast to L.A. day before yesterday. Five hour flight across the country, but you get up, move around. You know, it's 
you know, this, you can stretch your legs. They serve you stuff to eat. The bombers in World War II could do that. But not these fighter pilots. They were strapped in when they were to go. And so these are hard missions to begin with. Well, Jerry had flown 18 combat missions, was much more experienced than Phil. Phil had flown with him as his wingman before. But Phil had this premonition he wasn't going to make it. He told Jerry about it. Jerry tried to get Phil to Phil. Go to the flight surgeon. Um, tell him that we can substitute you out. Phil refused to do it. Then Coach Catmion, Jerry Young, went to the squadron commander, Major Jim Tapp, said, Major, um, you know, uh, Phil's having this rumination. We got we to pull him. We got to substitute him out. Because, you know, you want your fighter pilots yeah. to have an edge to them. Mm-hmm. And this commanding officer said, well, he's got to go to the flight surgeon. You know the rules. Jerry tried to get Phil Please go to flight surgery. We can we can swap you out for this Phil Schlumber refused to be. He had a premonition. He was not going to make it, and yet he and with an opportunity not to fly that mission, he still insisted upon flying that mission. And his life was cut short at the age of nineteen years, and his death marked the last combat death of a great war that had killed and taken the lives of so many, many, many millions of men and women too, um, which has been the the greatest and most devastating war yet to engulf the planet. I think it's important to mention, too, that he had actually fulfilled his mission. They were actually on their way back. You pointed out this is a very long flight from back from Japan. He had completed his mission. They were flying up into the clouds, and it was at that point that he literally disappeared, and uh, it was learned later that, you know, he probably was taken down by shrapnel. Uh, But he'd completed his mission, and uh, when uh, Captain Yellen arrived back in Iwo Jima, learned that uh, the war had officially ended, although word had not spread. That is correct. That's right. They uh, th- this flight to, to put it in perspective, and you mentioned it in your your excellent introduction, was five days after the United States had dropped a second atomic bomb on Japan. Right, that was dropped by between Uncle Boxcar on August the ninth of 1945 on a city called Nagasaki. We dropped two bombs. Really, the only bombs we had in the arsenal were ready. There were three more that were under development. Only two were ready. And uh, we're hoping to deliver a devastating blow by these two great bombs that have been dropped like nothing anyone had ever seen. Well, the Japanese did not surrender to Hiroshima, and then they did not after we dropped the second one on Nagasaki, they were given an opportunity to surrender again. And uh, they did not. And as a matter of fact, President Truman basically called the bombing off for a period of a day or so to give them an opportunity to surrender. Well, they did not surrender. He ordered the flights back because we've been, we have been hitting them by the air since November of 44, first with the bombers, and then since March of Actually, April of 45, when the, the fighters started to attack, we didn't spend an air war against them. And what was going on in Georgine is we were, we were preparing for a great land invasion of Japan. We were carrying out the same air campaign that was a, was the same air campaign that had been a prelude to Operation Overlord, the invasion of Europe. The, you start bombing the enemy, that was the strategy. You start weakening their industrial capacity and weakening their military capacity, and then you evade. But you know, this operation that was underway, Operation um, Downfall, the invasion of Japan, we had lost 400,000 men uh, to that day in World, in, in World War II before August of 45. 400,000 Americans already lost their lives. It was estimated that if we'd had to invade Japan, another one million Americans would have lost their lives. It would have been twice the losses that we'd already suffered. And Europe had already fallen. You know, Hitler was dead at this time. 
you know, uh, President Roosevelt passed away. Harry Truman uh, had been president for uh, just a little over a, um, a couple of months, really. And so, um, and so, you know, we were preparing to strike them. And uh, and on that morning, um, when these these guys were called up again, you know, uh, there had been great hope amongst the pilots on Iwo Jima that the bombs do the job. What they did not know, even as they lifted off into the sunrise that morning to for their mission, for this final mission. There was a coup attempt actively going mm-hmm. on against the emperor by mid-level army officers who wanted to stop him from taking the airways and who wanted to stop him from announcing surrender because they wanted to fight on. So we came very, very close because there were competing factions within, within Japan on the issue of whether or not they would surrender. And thank the Lord, you know, cooler heads prevail. But, you know, Jerry Yellen has told me that um, he would have lost his life. He, would, he doesn't believe he would have he would have lived had we had to invade Japan because their group would have been the, the tip of the spear, and he had dodged so many bullets, literally, up to that point. And I've had other World War II veterans tell me the same thing, but uh, that's how close we came to this being even more of a colossal disaster than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, World War II veterans rarely talk about is the the uh, the well, uh, the aftermath, the, the burden they carry of having uh, been engaged in, in war. And I know that um, Mr. Yellen, he, uh, for 30 years, suffered from post-traumatic stress. There wasn't a name for it then. There wasn't a way to treat it at the time. Um, it was difficult to transition from his experience at war and uh, back into civilian life. Um, talk a little bit about that challenge and uh, his return to Iwo Jima, the impact that had in his healing process. You know, it's uh, you're right. Um, this thing called post-traumatic stress, we, we've seen the symptoms for years, but really started to sort of identify a little bit after World War I when it was called shell shock mm-hmm. or the thousand-yard stare. You know, guys would stare across, they'd be staring. And then in World War II, it, it became known as battle fatigue. Uh, there's a, a great movie from 1970 um, called Patton, George, George C. Scott, great classic movie. There's a scene... When Patton goes into the into the tent after they've invaded Sicily, and he's he's giving medals, purple hearts to these soldiers who've been wounded, and one one you know one soldier is crying, and uh, Patton says, you know, what, what's what's the matter with you? And the soldier says, uh, I just can't take it, sir. And the and the the uh, physician says, it's battle fatigue. Pat slaps him. You know, oh, I remember, I remember that. that scene very well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what it was. They called it battle fatigue. But in more recent years after Vietnam, we understand that we've, under, we've because of studies by physicians that the shock, constant shock, will have an effect on the emotion. And in Jerry Yellen's case, you know, he was flying with stiff upper lip. But in, in the months, the last four, three months of the war, really from well, May, June, July, and then in August, he began to lose a slew of his very close friends. Um, he had a good friend named Dick Schraubel, who, who was shot down over Chichi Jima, the very same place President George Bush was shot down over, about 70 miles north of Iwo Jima. Schraubel landed in the water. He'd been Jerry's wingman. Jerry was running out of fuel, had to head out of Iwo Jima. There was a gallant effort to try to save Schraubel. He was just off the coast, and they were, you know, the American uh, the American Navy flew a Catalina in and tried to come in and get him under Japanese gunfire. Finally, Schraubel was killed. Then you had finally the death of this young Phil Schlomberg, who Jerry, and as I mentioned, they were the only two Jewish pilots in the squadron in, in both the New York City area. Jerry had taken under his wing, and it hit Jerry very, very hard. He yeah. felt responsible for, for Phil's death. He wished he had, he had 
insisted more that he not fly the mission. And he became sort of unable to function for a number of years, not really knowing what it was. Well, of course, it was post-traumatic stress. One of the things that helped in Jerry's healing, interestingly enough, was that his son wound up going to Japan on a work study and wound up, believe it or not, marrying a Japanese girl. And just to hear Jerry tell that story is amazing because the girl's father had been a kamikaze pilot, you know, and found out that Jerry was a P-51 pilot. It was rough at first, but he has little Japanese grandchildren. Now, all this has helped in the healing process, but Jerry, to his credit, got me on to his credit, recognizes the devastating effect of PTSD and has taken his message uh, he's still serving this country to young veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam and other wars where this is still a real problem, yeah. encouraging uh, these men and women also to, to get help. And he's been a real treasure in that regard, too, and I appreciate that so much. But it was the son, man, a Japanese girl that led, began the leading the road to healing, but it's taken years, you know, it's been yeah. 70 years now, and it's taken all this time within the last, really, 10 years for him to find healing. Well, I so appreciate your sharing his story in The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. It's published by Regnery History, a great read, and uh, I think you won't be able to put it down once you start, so make sure you have plenty of time when you pick it up. Hey, thanks so much, Don Brown. We look forward to the next conversation. Oh, you got it. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, members of health sharing ministries like Samaritan Ministries International are finding freedom every month because they're sending checks and encouraging notes directly to other members who are experiencing a health care need. And they're um, giving caring support to another as the Bible instructs. Well, here to talk about this kind of health sharing ministry is Anthony Hoppe is the vice president for external relations at Samaritan International, one of the largest and most established health care sharing uh, ministries of the month of the country, rather. He's a graduate of Eastern Illinois University. He has served since 1997 in a variety of roles and has had a uh, front row seat of God's uh, provision and plan for Samaritan Ministries as it's grown from a few households to about 68,000 families to date. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Hop. Good afternoon, Georgine. Good to be with you. Well, I appreciate your joining us. Let's begin by just talking about what um, health care sharing uh, is, because I, I know people are hearing about it but may not understand what that means exactly. Right. Well, essentially, uh, health care sharing is like crowdfunding for health care, where people of faith are coming together voluntarily to share one another's medical bills directly, person-to-person, household-to-household, without using any insurance at all. And one of the most encouraging aspects of this approach is that members not only share in the financial need, but through the direct sharing, they're able to pray for one another and send cards and notes of encouragement and really experience community in a personal way. And uh, we've been doing that since 1994, and there currently are just under 70,000 families, which translates to nearly 230,000 individuals, and altogether, they're sharing over $25 million a month. Now, how does that work? We know that under Obamacare, for example, the Affordable Care Act, there's a requirement that you have health care. There's a lot of debate going on uh, right now about uh, the the, uh, mandate for coverage and whether or not the system is working. How does this work in that context? Well, by God's grace, there is an exemption in the Affordable Care Act that states that members of health care sharing ministries can continue to participate in them and not be required to purchase insurance and therefore not be fined or taxed. 
So we were praising God, and it really was a series of miracles that it, that even came about. But it's important to underscore the fact that healthcare sharing existed long before the Affordable Care Act, so it mm-hmm. wasn't a reaction to. It simply enabled us to continue doing what we had been doing for some time. Now, Samaritan Ministries is one of the largest Christian health sharing ministries in America. Members make up about a quarter million people nationwide. They help share each other's medical needs. They pray for one another, send notes of encouragement. How is that connection made in the kind of insurance that most of us are familiar with? We are billed every month and we send in uh, what's required. In this configuration, how does that work uh, and how do, how do the personal connections uh, work in this system? Well, the direct sharing is really at the center of what we're doing. The members are connected with each other. While it certainly would be easier administratively for Samaritan to collect the money, uh, the beautiful thing uh, is that ministry happens between the members. So Samaritan simply serves as a facilitator matching up members with uh, other members who have medical needs. So it's important to note that the sharing process itself is a very coordinated one, not haphazard where somebody has $50,000 in medical expenses and we all cross our fingers and hope that enough gets sent. Instead, we would allocate or direct the right amount of members to send their shares to the person with the need uh, to make sure that the full amount was sent. And, And the interesting thing, Georgine, is that time and time again, when members have really large medical needs, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even in excess of a million dollars, what they first talk about isn't the money that they received, but it's the community they experienced from brothers and sisters in Christ they've never even met and probably won't this side of heaven. Mm. Now, what makes Samaritan Ministries International unique uh, in terms of its health-sharing model uh, compared to other uh, organizations? Yes, and, and there are some really good ones out there. The, the way that Samaritan does it is through this member-to-member approach. So, The member connection is a distinctive for sure. And not only that, but members really lead the organization. We are governed by a board of directors who gets elected by the membership themselves. Also, members determine the monthly share, which is pretty unique. So anytime that there's the prospect of a share increase, the members, meaning all 70,000 households, vote whether or not to raise the share. And uh, if 60% or more vote yes, then the share is increased. And historically, those increases have been modest and uh, far and few between compared to what happens um, in the rest of the healthcare world. But those really would be the two distinctives, the fact that it's member-to-member connection and Samaritan is member-led. Now, one of the major issues in the healthcare debate uh, swirling around us right now is the cost. Uh, talk a bit about the cost savings that members in this kind of healthcare sharing ministry enjoy. Yeah, well, members are currently sending four ninety five a month for a family of any size. So whether there's one child or fifteen children, four ninety five is the monthly share for a family. Couples currently send four forty a month, and a single person would send two twenty. So uh, cost wise, people are definitely saving money. But another interesting point is that people are usually joining on principle over price. The price certainly is attractive, but what people find is that the community they experience, also the assurance that their money is being stewarded in a way that does not violate their faith or values mm-hmm. is pretty exciting. And then finally, the opportunity to direct one's own health care, because Samaritan members are choosing their own doctors, they're choosing their own treatments. 
we don't believe there should be any third party that's involved in that decision. That should be up to the family. And so members are directing their own health care. So how does that work with uh, with health care providers? Is there any question about if you're paying for your health care through uh, something like this ministry? Is that an impediment? Have you found uh, for health care providers to recognize that and to provide service, uh, knowing that the, the payment for that service is coming through this kind of a ministry? Yes. Well, it can actually be a benefit, the fact that it's be, the relationship now is between the doctor and the patient. So Samaritan members are self-pay or cash-pay patients, and members carry a card to that effect that explains they're part of a, a group of people who will be sharing in the medical expense and that the member should be billed directly. Uh, but the great thing is, is that removing the middleman allows the relationship between the doctor and the patient to happen the way it's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. One of my friends uh, out in Oregon actually had uh, had a physical with his doctor, and he had jotted down four or five issues that he wanted to speak to his doctor about. And he gets out his list, and the doctor raises his hand and says, whoa, we can't talk about that because we would have to make another appointment, and I would have to code it differently for insurance. My friend stopped the, his doctor and said, remember, I'm, I'm self-pay. I'm part of the Samaritan Ministries, and so I'm going to be paying you in cash. The doctor's face lights up, and he says, oh, you're right. We can talk about anything you want to talk about. And as absurd as that is, that's kind of where we're at, where you have to question who's who's really the customer. Is it the patient or is it somebody else? Now, for listeners who are interested in finding out more about Samaritan Ministries, where can they uh, get that information? SamaritanMinistries.org. That's Samaritan singular, Ministries, uh, I-E-S, dot O-R-G. And uh, you can also be called during uh, business hours, 8 to 5 Central, at 877 2426. And we have plenty of staff who are very uh, patient and friendly and willing to walk through the process. We understand this is a paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. a whole different animal. And so uh, they patiently walk through with prospective members to explain what healthcare sharing is. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org. Hey, thank you so much for helping us better understand uh, this ministry and give us an option that I think many of us would find very, very uh, uh, favorable and consistent with our faith. Oh, my pleasure, Georgine. Thanks for the opportunity. Again, Anthony Hopson, Hopkins, Hops rather, is the Vice President for External Relations at Samaritan International. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Special Counsel Robert Mueller, he's impaneled a grand jury to investigate Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. That was reported earlier today by the Wall Street Journal. Now, this is a move that's seen as a sign that the investigation into the election interference of Russia and possible collusion with the Trump campaign is heating up and entering a new phase. Now, Reuters also reported that grand jury subpoenas have been issued in connection uh, with the meeting Donald Trump Jr. had with a Russian lawyer and others last year. Now, it's important to put this into perspective. Um, there has been special counsel, and they have been doing their work, but when uh, special counsel impanels a grand jury, that means subpoenas are or will be issued. Only a grand jury can issue subpoenas. So the, the significance of this, because when I first started hearing the story, I thought, well, the grand jury is, or rather the 
the special counsel has been in place for quite some time. What's the big deal? Well, the grand jury means there's uh, there's more and that uh, the grand jury will determine whether or not subpoenas are merited. And uh, my understanding is that uh, subpoenas have already been issued in some cases, including Donald Trump Jr. and the meeting he had with a Russian lawyer and others last year. Well, Russia has denied having a hand in the U.S. presidential election. President Trump, too, has strongly denied allegations of collusion. He's uh, frequently called the investigation a witch hunt. Grand juries allow prosecutions, or rather prosecutors, to subpoena documents to get witness testimony on the record. They also can seek indictments. Ty Cobb, who's the special counsel to the president, says that he wasn't aware that Mueller had, in fact, impaneled a new grand jury, but said we favor anything that brings this investigation to a swift conclusion. Cobb also told reporters that grand jury uh, matters are typically secret and the White House is committed to fully operating with Mr. Mueller. We have no reason to believe President Trump is under investigation. His attorney, John Dowd, said White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she noted that former FBI Director James Comey repeatedly said Trump was not under investigation earlier this year. Well, he was the former FBI director. That does not mean uh, Mr. Mueller will... uh, exonerate or has exonerated the president. We'll have to wait and see. Mueller, who now has a team of about 16 attorneys, uh, was uh, brought on as special counsel back in May. Prior to his involvement there, federal prosecutors reportedly have been using another grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, to help with the uh, criminal investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Now, the Flynn case focuses on his work in the private sector on behalf of foreign interests. Asked Thursday about the uh, journal report, the special counsel's office Office had no comment. No surprise there. They tend to operate in secret. Uh, Trump and his uh, allies have in recent weeks openly criticized Mueller with one Republican lawmaker even calling for him to step aside. Other lawmakers have responded uh, with proposals that would serve to shield Mueller from being fired. Now, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not Trump will uh, attempt to fire him. The Trump administration has not said so, but it uh, takes a lot of uh, media time when you're on 24 seven. Uh, to talk about what may happen, even in the absence of evidence that it's being considered at this point. Trump also has fumed about Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision to recuse himself from the Russia case, which cleared the way for Mueller's eventual appointment, though Sessions has recently been told by the White House his job is considered safe. Thomas Zeno, a former federal prosecutor, told the journal, that's the, the Wall Street Journal, that uh, impaneling a grand jury is confirmation that this is a very vigorous investigation going on. Now, again, that's a bit of speculation. It's, it's moving forward. There's certainly uh, truth to that. But because these, uh, these bodies move in virtual secrecy, at least traditionally, we don't really know. And it, it may be moving vigorously forward. We don't actually know. But it certainly sounds more exciting if we say it is than... Uh, that the uh, grand jury has been impaneled and they're considering what uh, the special counsel has asked them to consider. Well, Zeno cautioned the uh, step does not automatically mean Mueller will bring charges, but added it shows he is very serious. He wouldn't do this if the investigation were winding down. And that's probably certainly the case. And I think most people assumed Mr. Mueller was serious from the beginning. So that's not really news either. Well, the day before Attorney General Jeff Sessions is set to discuss a new leak crackdown, the transcripts of two heated January phone calls President Trump held with foreign leaders spilled into the headlines. Now, the fact that they spilled at all is reason for concern. Uh, The Washington Post reported, based on those leaked documents, that Trump pressured Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto 
on the 27th of January to stop publicly saying his government would not pay for the border wall. The report also aired new details over the president's infamously tense phone call the next day with Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Both phone calls were widely reported in February in one of the first major leaks out of the Trump administration that have since become a constant headache. But the Post claimed today that uh, to have obtained the full transcripts, which reportedly uh, were produced by White House staff and based on records kept by White House note takers. Now, why this is now in the public domain is a big question. And again, this is a day before Attorney General Jeff Sessions is set to discuss a new leak crackdown. Well, both phone calls uh, were significant uh, at the time they were uh, taken, Um, two major leaks, and they're significant now. The reported transcripts give a fuller picture of what went down in those calls. According to the Post, Trump got on Pena Naito's case about vows to never pay for the wall. You cannot say uh, that to the press, Trump said, according to the Post. Uh, Trump reportedly said the money issue will work out in the formula somehow. It will come out in the wash, and that's okay. But if the Mexican leader insists on saying he won't pay, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore because I cannot live with that. That's uh, purportedly a direct quote. Trump reportedly called the wall the least important thing we are talking about, but politically, this might be the most important. The call with uh, Turnbull broke down over Trump's disappointment with a U.S. agreement from the Obama administration to take refugees from Australia detention centers. This is going to kill me, he reportedly told Turnbull. I am the world's greatest person. Wow. (laughs) I thought I was. That's why I'm surprised here. Anyway, uh, the president is uh, alleged to have said, I am the world's greatest person that does not want to let people into the country. And I now I am agreeing to take uh, 2000 people End quote. He called the deal horrible and said, I, um, I hate uh, taking these people. I guarantee you that they are bad. End quote. Well, he warned the refugees could become the Boston bomber in five years, according to the report. Holding nothing back, Trump told the Australian prime minister this was the most unpleasant call all day. The report comes as Sessions is expected to discuss efforts to crack down on leaks during a press conference on Friday. The announcement may provide more than an overview of what the, the Department of Justice hopes to accomplish rather than specific uh, prosecutions at that stage. Last month, a report written by Republicans on the Senate's Homeland, or Homeland Security panel warned that the Trump administration faced an alarming amount of media leaks that posed a potential threat to national security. The 24-page report was titled State Secrets, How the how an Avalanche of Media Leaks is Harming National Security, estimated the Trump administration has had about one leak per day. The White House also has uh, battled internally to plug the leaks. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci, who vowed to tackle the problem when he was named communications director for about five minutes, uh, but he was ousted on Monday as chief of staff. Uh, John Kelly took over and, you know, the rest of that story. Uh, but again, I would imagine most administrations, most presidents would be loath to have the specifics of their conversations leaked to the general public. It's sort of like making sausage. These are conversations that not only for the sake of the reputation of the executive, but for the sake of the person with whom you are speaking, those conversations are intended to be confidential. And while it is somewhat telling to hear the details of Uh, purportedly the details of the conversation the president had with these two national leaders. Uh, It does uh, beg the question of whether or not uh, this White House is capable of uh, plugging those leaks for the sake not of destroying or enhancing his political future, but for the sake of the nation. We'll continue to follow uh, that story as uh, the attorney general will make that announcement at some point, uh, probably tomorrow.
Meanwhile, conservative watchdog group Judicial Watch is clashing with the Trump Justice Department over access to talking points the Department of Justice prepared under the Obama administration to explain the controversial tarmac meeting between Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton last year. Judicial Watch is seeking the documents as part of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. The group complained last uh, Wednesday, or rather late Wednesday, that it had received heavily redacted emails pertaining to the department's internal preparations last year to press inquiries on the Lynch-Clinton meeting. It's a jaw-dropping, uh, it's jaw-dropping rather, that the Trump administration is blacking out key information about how the Obama Justice Department tried to spin Loretta Lynch's scandalous meeting with Bill Clinton. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said in a written statement on, uh, regarding the lawsuit, the tarmac meeting fueled Republican complaints at the time and since that then Attorney General Loretta Lynch had improperly met with the husband of an investigative an investigation subject, Hillary Clinton, just before the probe into her personal email use was completed with no charges filed. Fired FBI Director James Comey in Senate testimony in June described that tarmac meeting as problematic. Judicial Watch says Peter Kadzik, then Assistant Attorney General, was involved in handling the Justice Department's response to the media inquiries regarding the tarmac meeting at the time. But one email exchange shows a redacted response from him to an email with the subject line draft Statement talking points on June the 28th, 2016. Another email shows then director of the Justice Department Public Affairs Office, Melanie Newman, emailing with colleagues to flag a story about a casual, unscheduled meeting between former President Bill Clinton and the AG. Kazakh did not immediately respond to uh, requests for comment. Uh, but uh, Newman's assistant said that she had uh, no comment either. President Trump should order the full and immediate release of these materials, Fitton said, with the ju- the Judicial Watch. Uh, they've begun criticizing the Trump administration agencies for continuing to protect Clinton and the Obama administration. And we'll, uh, we'll follow that story. Do you need to take a quick break? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a Democrat out of Florida, you know who she was, used to be the head of the DNC, seemingly planned to pay cyber probe suspect and IT aide Imran Awan, even while he was living in Pakistan, if the FBI hadn't stopped him from leaving the U.S. last week. And the question is, Why? Public statements and congressional payroll records suggest Wasserman Schultz, chairman of the Democratic uh, Party until last year, also appears to have known that Awan's wife, also an information technology staff, had left the country for good months uh, months ago while she was a criminal suspect. In all, six months of actions reveal a decision to continue paying a man who seemingly could not have been providing services to her and who a mountain of evidence suggests was a liability. The man long had access to all of Washerman Schultz's computer files, work emails, personal emails, and he was recently accused by a relative in court documents of wiretapping and extortion. We not only had access to her records, but other high power, high level Democrats as well. Now, records also raise questions about whether the Florida Democrat permitted Awan to continue to access computers after housewide authorities banned him from the network on the 2nd of February. Not only did she keep him on as staff after the ban, but she also did not have any other IT person to perform necessary work that presumably would have arisen during the months long period, according to payroll records. So who was handling that if he 
he was not given access or had been banned from having access. Wasserman Schultz employed Pakistan-born Awan and his wife, Hina Alvi, and refused to fire either of them, even after U.S. Capitol Police said in February of this year that they were targets of the criminal investigation. She said police wouldn't show her evidence against the couple, and without it, she assumed they might be victims of anti-Muslim profiling. Awan booked a round-trip ticket to Pakistan in July and planned to depart on the 24th with a return ticket in six months. He was arrested in Dulles Airport during his attempt to leave. The Associated Press reported that Awan's lawyer, Chris Gowan, said Awan had informed the House of his plans to visit his family. Wasserman Scholl's spokesperson cited Awan's arrest as the reason for ending his employment. Upon learning of his arrest, he was terminated. Well, finally, well, the office's insistence that his termination was prompted by the arrest and not the House Sergeant of Arms banning Awan and his wife from touching congressional computers or his six months in Pakistan suggests that uh, that had he boarded the flight without incident, he would still be on the government payroll. Does that mean if he had boarded the flight as planned, the office would have been paying him for six months while he was abroad? Well, the Daily Signal News Foundation's investigative group asked Washerman Schultz, uh, spokesman, uh, why would uh, why would it do that? The spokesman did not respond. Awan's wife, Alvi, left the country under similar circumstances back in March after withdrawing the couple's three children from school without telling the Virginia education officials, packing up all their positions, hiding $12,000 in cash, according to an FBI affidavit. She allegedly had hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting in Pakistan for her. Money, the FBI says, Awan had obtained partly through mortgage fraud and had wired overseas using a false explanation. Two days later, on March the 7th, House Records show Alvi was uh, cut from Wasserman Scholl's payroll. And though he uh, bought a round-trip ticket to, with a return in six months, the FBI says it does not believe that Alvi has uh, had any intention to return to the United States. Now, Wasserman Scholl's spokesman, David Dom- uh, Dameron, uh, didn't respond to a request to explain why he had been terminated two days into the trip she claimed was temporary, while her husband had not been terminated for six months, uh, that move. Between the uh, part-time nature of her work and the ban, her absence was unlikely to have had uh, been noticed in two days without someone telling the office of her plans. Washerman Schultz's office also wouldn't say if the office knew Alvi's round trip was a permanent move. Uh, the pair were both IT aides whose jobs required access to the computer network, but the House Sergeant at Arms banned them from accessing it between uh, beginning in February. Uh, the, the couple were Wasserman Scholl's only information technology staffers. Payroll records through the latest available period, the 31st of March, indicate that no other IT staffer or vendor was added to the payroll after their ban. A House source said Awan uh, was uh, seen in the House office building multiple times after being banned from the network. Imran Awan is working in an advisory role for Wasserman Scholl's, her spokesperson said, providing advice on technology issues. The spokesman wouldn't say who did the office's computer computer work after the ban, if not Awan. As information technology administrators, the suspects could read all emails sent and received by the lawmaker, see all files on the staff members' computers, numerous House IT aides said. WikiLeaks shows that Awan also had passwords to Wasserman Schultz iPad. In public record, uh, public court records filed in Fairfax, Virginia, his stepmother accused him of wiretapping and extortion as well. Imran Awan did admit to me that my uh, phone was tapped and there are devices installed in my house, his stepmother 
uh, claimed in documents filed in April. Imran Awan threatened that he is uh, very powerful, and if I ever call the police again, he will kidnap my family members back in Pakistan. Well, despite Wasserman Scholl's professed concern about stereotyping all other colleagues who employed Awan and Alvi, uh, or other um, relatives on House payroll fired them, including Representative Andre Carson, who is Muslim and has criticized Wasserman Schultz for blocking police from examining a laptop tied to him. Well, that laptop was found in an unused uh, crevice of a House office building and seized as evidence by Capitol Police. By, but Wasserman Schultz appeared determined that police would not see its contents, threatening consequences for the police chief if he didn't release it. The exchange was captured on video. It's been reported that months later, she had blocked police from looking at the laptop, but had become open to negotiating with police, possibly turning over certain files, as former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was permitted to do in deciding which of her emails were personal. Observers have decried Wasserman Schultz's judgment and cybersecurity record, noting she was chairman of the DNC when it was hacked. A group of Democratic donors filed a lawsuit saying she and the DNC breached the duties they owed to members of the DNC donor class by failing to exercise reasonable care and implement adequate cybersecurity protocols. My guess is this simply strengthens their hand and their claim. Well, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is uh, reinforcing threats to go after sanctuary cities. He's warning the administration may withhold federal crime fighting funds for four places struggling with gun violence. It's the latest threat made by Sessions in his public campaign to force cooperation between local authorities and federal immigration officials. Well, the Justice Department sent letters to police departments in Baltimore, Maryland, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Stockton and San Bernardino, California, calling them uh, if they uh, uh, telling them rather that if they wanted federal help to root out drug trafficking and gang crime, they'd have to work with federal immigration authorities. Among other things, the Justice Department said they might give the authorities access to jails and provide advance notice before releasing someone in custody who's wanted on immigration violations. The four cities targeted had all expressed interest in the DOJ's new public safety partnership, which enlists federal agents, analysts and technology to help communities find solutions to crime. Based on our new review, we have concluded that your jurisdiction has levels of Violence that exceed the national average, that your jurisdiction is ready to receive the intensive assistance that the department is prepared to provide, and that your jurisdiction is taking steps to reduce its violence crime. That letter was dated the 3rd. Uh, the letter sent to, or rather by the Department of Justice to the four prospective cities and their police departments also um, asked them to, uh, for proof rather, of their Compliance um, to step up efforts to help detain and deport people in the United States illegally. The deadline for them is August the 18th. Well, West Virginia Democratic uh, Governor Jim Justice uh, plans to announce at a rally tonight uh, with President Trump that he is changing parties. Three Republican sources confirm Justice uh, is expected to announce his becoming a Republican. Trump earlier in the day had teased the prospect of uh, having a big announcement at his rally in Huntington, West Virginia. The state is a Trump stronghold, and even as the president faces a record low approval ratings nationally, his popularity has largely held in West Virginia. At least a 1,000 supporters line the streets ahead of the president's expected appearance, wearing Make America Great Again hats and chanting USA, USA. The New York Times first reported that Justice uh, plans to announce his party change. The rally is set to, to start shortly after 7 o'clock p.m., That's Eastern time. Uh, We'll see what uh, the West Virginia Democratic governor has to say. And if, in fact, he announces that he is changing 
his political party as expected. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk about a DNA breakthrough. Apparently, scientists have repaired the genes in a human embryo or maybe plural embryos to prevent inherited diseases. There's always two sides to the question, and one uh, has to ask whether or not the ethical questions surrounding this kind of uh, medical breakthrough are being asked and properly answered before moving forward. While this uh, capacity uh, could prove to be very useful in helping to um, save young uh, young children from inherited uh, inheritable diseases. There's also the potential of abuse, and we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Uh, also, um, a woman uh, who was such, well being tried for encouraging her boyfriend to commit suicide was sentenced today. It's a rather interesting case. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, we all learned about what happened at OHSU recently, but we didn't know many of the details. But this major scientific breakthrough that we'd heard about, researchers have harnessed a gene editing tool to correct a disease-causing gene mutation in human embryos, preventing the mutation from passing to future generations. Now, in a stunning discovery, and again, the research team led by Oregon Health Sciences University reported that embryos can fix themselves if science jumpstarts the process early enough. Now, there was no indication how soon ordinary patients could take advantage of this technique. But the new technique, which was uh, tested on uh, clinical quality human eggs, uses the CRISPR Case 9 gene editing tool. Now, most of us have no idea what that is. I pass along the name just so it might become familiar to you. Uh, if it's uh, re- referenced again, but it's uh, it targets a mutation in, nucle- in uh, nuclear DNA that causes um, uh, uh, the kind of morphing into disease that's carried from one generation to another, according to researchers. Um, it's a common genetic heart disease in this particular case that was uh, targeted that can cause heart failure and sudden cardiac death. The disease affects approximately one in 500 people. It's a common cause of sudden heart failure in young people, particularly young athletes. The research was published earlier, well, actually uh, yesterday in the journal Nature. Now, while the procedure is nowhere near ready to be tried in a pregnancy, the research suggests that scientists might alter DNA in a way that protects not just one baby from a disease, that runs in the family, but his or her offspring as well. Uh, quoting Dr. Um, Schalkrat, uh, who was the director of OHSU's uh, Center for Embryonic Cell and Gene Therapy, in a statement, he says, every generation uh, on would carry this repair because we're, we've removed the disease-causing gene variant from that family lineage. By using this technique, it's possible to reduce the burden of this heritable disease on the family and eventually the human population. The research offers fresh insight into a technique that could apply to thousands of inherited uh, genetic disorders affecting millions of people worldwide, according to experts. The team programmed the CRISPR Case 9, which acts like a pair of, of uh, molecular scissors Uh, to find that mutation, a missing piece of genetic material. Researchers injected sperm from a patient with the heart uh, condition along with those molecular scissors into a healthy donated egg at the same time. The scissors cut the defective DNA in the sperm. Now, one of the troubling aspects of that is sperm egg together. That's the beginning of human life. I'm not going to get into that right now. But uh, again, what's necessary to develop this technology is in itself uh, troubling. But nonetheless, that is... Uh, what the announcement we heard uh, some days back was uh, was about. 
Well, a Massachusetts woman who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend to kill himself was sentenced today to two and a half years in prison. Now, this is significant because if this sets a precedent, what you say, what you um, encourage others to do, you could be held criminally liable for. Now, Michelle Carter, 20, was sentenced to two and a half years behind bars, but only has to serve about 15 months of that. She was also sentenced to five years of probation. She was convicted back in June of involuntary manslaughter and faced up to 20 years in prison. Prosecutors requested that she be sentenced to at least seven years in state prison, but no more than 12 years. Carter's attorney recommended five years of supervised probation, rather, with mental health counseling. During the sentencing, the prosecutor said Carter showed no remorse and should be punished for her actions, or at least her words. All she had to do was say to Roy, the young man, her boyfriend, get out of the truck. And I'll explain in a moment. Get out of the truck. But Carter's attorney insisted her client will be better off on probation with mental health treatment. The young man's father, Conrad Roy Jr., also said in his impact statement, Carter exploited his son's weakness and used him as a pawn. I am heartbroken. Our family is heartbroken. Uh, where is uh, is your humanity or her humanity? In what world is this acceptable? Well, Carter was 17 years old back in 2014. Uh, when she persuaded her boyfriend, uh, Conrad Roy III, who was 18, to kill himself with a series of texts and phone calls, prosecutors said. Roy died when his pickup truck filled with carbon monoxide in a store parking lot in uh, uh, Fairhaven, Massachusetts. He had apparently exited the car at one occasion, spoke to the girl. She encouraged him to get back in the car to complete what he intended to do. Wow. Carter wrote in one text, you can't think about it. You just have to do it. You said you were going to do it like uh, I don't get why you aren't her text. Carter was tried as a youthful offender. So the judge uh, could have uh, uh, committed her to the Department of Youth Services facility until she turns 21 on August 11th. Uh, He could also have combined the uh, DYS commitment with an adult sentence or given her an adult sentence of anything from probation to the minimum 20 year term. Roy's aunt, Kim Bosey, said in a statement, Carter uh, should be given the maximum amount of prison time. The Boston Herald reported 20 years may seem extreme, but it's still 20 more than Conrad will ever have. She said in her statement in a letter to the judge, David Carter, Michelle's father, Uh, said his daughter made a tragic mistake. He asked for probation and continued counseling. Joseph Cataldo, Carter's lawyer, argued that Roy was determined to kill himself and nothing Carter did would have changed his decision. He also argued that Carter's words were protected as free speech by the First Amendment. This is certain to be um, uh, appealed. On June the 16th, the judge found Carter guilty of telling Roy to get back in after he climbed out of the truck Um, as it was filling with carbon uh, monoxide, and he died uh, that day on the scene. Uh, The interesting thing that I think will probably be challenged is whether or not her text, her words in print, um, constitute um, her being uh, involved in the homicide. Now, she was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Um, And again, I'm I'm almost certain this will be uh, appealed uh, on those grounds. But for what she said to her boyfriend, who apparently had taken steps to end his life, she is now being held criminally liable. Be careful what you say, whether that's uh, in audible terms or if you're uh, simply uh, texting uh, information, encouraging someone to engage in activity that either is self-harming or has the potential to harm others. 
Well, we're just about uh, finishing up with this segment, but I wanted to mention that today, as I mentioned yesterday, that we had an appointment with Dan Rice's infectious diseases doctor, and I'm happy to announce that he was told tomorrow when the home nurse comes to our home, she will, he or she will remove the pick line and his uh, 24-7 course of antibiotics that have been surging through his body for six weeks will come to an end. Uh, That means he will start to regain his strength. He won't be quite as worn out as those drugs have made him over these six weeks. And he plans on returning to work sometime next week. So he's raring to go. We're both very grateful. I have to tell you, whatever the doctor was going to say to us uh, today, we were prepared to declare without hesitation, God is good. Uh, we're grateful that uh, that um, the antibiotics appear to have worked. We're going to do some blood cultures in the weeks ahead to make sure that the infection doesn't return, which is always a possibility in our experience uh, previously has been the antibiotics course is completed and he ends up having to have the surgery. We don't uh, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what's going to happen here, but we are grateful for this reprieve and we're asking God to to uh, stave off that infection so that it does not return. And we're moving forward with gratitude um, and looking forward to uh, the rest of the summer. Dan feels like he's kind of missed the summer altogether. And we're looking forward to spending the rest of the summer doing something fun without that little backpack that buzzes every couple of seconds as it's uh, pumping the antibiotics into uh, into his heart. So I appreciate your prayers and uh, your thoughtfulness and concern that's been expressed. It has meant so much to us. And I think I mentioned uh, before that we really sense that we are being um, held up and buoyed up by the prayers of the saints, and that includes so many of you. So thank you so much. Well, as I mentioned yesterday, I am going to spend some time with Dan Rice both Friday and now Monday as well, as we're going to celebrate and do something fun. So you'll have an opportunity to hear the best of the Georgine Rice Show on um, Friday, and I believe Eric Metaxas on uh, Monday. So something to look forward to. I'll be back live in studio on Tuesday. So have a great weekend. Stay cool. We'll be back on Tuesday. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.